Hi, my name is Jesse Ken, and I've devoted my life to trying to go deep and figure out what goes into making great records. I've produced over a thousand records, written two books, and recorded hundreds of podcasts pursuing the hidden secrets of how great music gets to the world's ears. Now I'm proud to present to you Atlantic Records Inside the Album Podcast, where we get to go deeper on how some of Atlantic's artists have made the amazing albums in their catalog. We will hear firsthand from the artists and the team behind them that helped craft these amazing records and get to know the little secrets that go into making an amazing album. First up is Dashboard Confessional and their new record, Crooked Shadows. It's a common theme today that fans buzzing about an artist on the internet can take them from empty rooms to a huge buzz band packing clubs with thousands of people in just a few years. But in the year 2000, the middle of the Napster era, this wasn't yet a common theme to see the power of people sharing the music they love on the internet, elevating an artist to a huge fan base. But down on the eastern coast of Florida, in the college town of Boca Raton, Chris Caraba was playing with the now legendary act Further Seems Forever. He decided to pick up an acoustic guitar and do his own thing, which would be called Dashboard Confessional, a name he got from a lyric in his song, The Sharp Hint of New Tears. Bolstered by fan enthusiasm, Dashboard would release The Swiss Army Romance on Fiddler Records, a release that would see two different reissues on prominent indie labels and see its most viral songs placed on its follow-up LP, The Places You Come to Fear the Most. The single Screaming Infidelities would get major MTV play and begin to have its lyrics tattooed on teenagers across the world. Soon after Screaming Infidelity's success, Chris began to cement Dashboard Confessional as a staple in the lives of teenagers going through the awkward emotions of their early lives. Colin Bertain, who ended up producing and mixing Chris's latest record, was one of these teenagers. I've actually been a longtime fan of them. Um, I would say they were one of my influences growing up. Uh, I remember, you know, certainly when I was a teenager and I was in bands, um, you know, we used to cover some of their songs. Moving on to a major label, Chris released A Mark, A Mission, A Brand, A Scar, and Dusk and Summer. Both went to number two on the Billboard Top 200, which many credit as one of the turning points in Emo's breakthrough. After that, Chris released two more genre-defining LPs, but then something happened. While writing the follow-up to 2009's Alter the Ending, a technical mishap gave him pause to reconsider whether he should keep doing Dashboard Confessional. I'll let him tell the story from here. I lost that record after Alter the Ending. And it was really fortuitous because I was just writing because I was still in the mode of like, I'm supposed to write these songs. We're really worried that in our exhaustion, our physical exhaustion, a bit of our mental exhaustion, the reserve was just tapped out, that we'd be better off bowing out from touring. Otherwise, we were in danger of phoning it in. And I don't think our audience is going to forgive that. They'll forget a lot of things, not everything, but I don't think they'll forgive that. And we don't have the kind of thing where we like, as a songwriter and somebody that sort of dreams about being on the radio, I'm, I'm, I have a little bit of a jealousy to bands I love, like The Killers, that mm -hmm. just kind of crush it at radio constantly mm -hmm. without losing a shred of their dignity or what seems to fuel their ethos or whatever. But we, we, did, we have songs that move the cultural needle. That's not quite the same. What we do have is this agreement with our fans that we're going to go out there and we're going to deliver everything we have in the moment and that we're going to have a lot to deliver in that moment. And I just thought we, we were dangerously close to not having a lot to give. And I just thought, oh, that's a bell you can't unring. But this was still my lifestyle. You know, I would write songs for this band. I'd record songs for this band. I'd play shows for this band. I'd talk with people like you for this band. It was my job. It was also my passion. So it was a slow withdrawal uh, from that, that arena of work. So during that time, as we were coming to the conclusion, but weren't there yet, that we should be walking away from touring for a bit, I just started making a follow-up to Alter the Ending. 
And the songs were, they felt good in that, as I wrote them, I'm like, yeah, this, this hits all the, um, my criteria for criticism, of self-criticism and, I, I, and all that stuff. And I recorded a lot of them. And then the, the drive went, all the drives went. It was the, uh, kind of this cataclysm where there was um, somebody in the studio was backing up all the drives together so that there would be quite a lot of safety measures. But something was corrupted in that process. And I lost everything. And I lost things I'd recorded that are out now. Like, at the, I, don't, I don't have the, some of the other records that I had, the multi-tracks too and all. Oh, wow. It's a bum out. Th- a lot of those I got back through rigorous work on the drives. And we tried that with the, the record that was lost. I tried to get the data back. It wasn't coming back. So I said, okay, let's just get, it's all fresh. Let's get right back into it. And I realized I, I don't believe in these songs. Like I just didn't, I just didn't want to record those songs again. If my record right now was ruined, the record we're, we're here to talk about today, I would run up, I think they have a studio in this building. I begged to let them use it. And I would, ch- I chase that down. I believe in these songs with everything I have, and I would not let something as simple as a hard drive malfunction stop a record from happening. But it made me take a minute to assess, are these songs great? And I thought they were very good. And I hate very good. That's that's really useless to me. After Chris decided that he would not make another Dashboard record for the time being, he pursued his other musical pursuits, Twin Forks, and made a fantastic new record with his old band, Further Seems Forever. But then something changed, and he wanted to scratch the Dashboard itch again. I first asked how he knew he was writing Dashboard confessional songs instead of a Twin Forks song or a Further Seems Forever song. Just like you know the difference between a blue pen and a black pen. I don't know why. It's mm-hmm. just like, it's. It, yep, they're both pens that both ink, but I know that in this scenario, I need a black pen, or I've used a black pen, whatever it is, I don't know. That's a terrible analogy. But in any event, it's, it's just as basic as that, though, for me. It's, it's not a mystery. I just, I just know it. But I was actively avoiding any time the inspiration snuck in to write a Dashboard song. If the inspiration came to write a Twin Forks song or further song, I would sit down and do it. And if I felt like writing and I didn't know what I was writing for, I would do a thing that I can't do with Dashboard, which is decide, I'm writing a further song right now, or I'm writing a Twin Forks song right now, and just get to work on it. And I just, that's never been available to me as a writer when it comes to dashboard. So we come back from a hiatus of touring first. And so all of a sudden the songs, the catalog of songs becomes very alive. And also we're in this place of kind of sheer disbelief of the numbers of people that seem to want to see us play live. And so we thought we were coming back into clubs and thought that would be appropriate. Having left at like amphitheater and arena size, we thought, well, I'd love to get back there. Let's get to work and let's go to play clubs. And the tickets would sell and then they would sell more and we'd move the room up. And next thing you know, we were in amphitheaters. And I look over at the audience and they were singing with real conviction. And I'd look at the audience and I'd see the same thing I saw before we left, which was an audience that was really hard to define by looking at them. It was not, you know, some of the knocks on our scene are appropriate. Some of them are unfounded. But one thing that I did notice was that it got homogenized a little bit in the look of the bands and the fans. And that just didn't, never really applied to our little corner of our music scene. It just, it could be a woman who looked like she might be a hippie, and then a dude with a giant beard and neck tattoos. Then it looked like you're, you know, like a goth kid, and then it would look like maybe what was stereotypical emo kid, and then you'd see just like, just a, what I call just a guy, which is, just a guy is my favorite, and this is not gender specific, but just a person, and that's somebody that like contrasts like I do, like, like I just, 
there's I'm not it's there's no costume involved. It's just a guy. But I saw the age range was the original fan base. Then the attendance of people that I mean the original fan base, you know, at that age, the age they are now, and then the same sort of number of people that were their analogs of younger people from earlier in our career. And I began to figure out that they would say to me, I was too young to go to your shows. When you stopped, right when I was able to come to your shows, you stopped, and now here we are. So all these things invigorated me and lit the flame. And I thought, oh, I better write something. And I stopped. I stopped. I said, whoa, buddy. That reactionary approach is, is just not going to work. We were bold enough to leave for, the, for a reason. Let's be bold enough to not appropriate the moment. So it wasn't until after the second, it, it was two summer, two long summer tours and, you know, tours in between. But after the second summer tour, a song came to me one morning when I, like almost immediately after, when I was finished, there, there's a like runner's high, something similar to a runner's high when you finish the song. So I finished the song and I said, I did, I found it. There is necessity inside me to write dashboard songs. I hope, because I just did one. And I feel euphoric and all the feelings that, I, that are indescribable that happen when I write a dashboard song. The reason this band is so special to me, beyond all the wonderful things it's given to me, it starts with this feeling I get when I write a song. And I said, damn it, Chris, don't do this tomorrow. Do not try to do this tomorrow. Because if it's not there, it, you may believe it won't be there again. And so the next morning I woke up and I ran for my guitar. And I absolutely sat down and found another song. And said the same thing at the end, don't do this. It's going to run out. You can fool yourself, kid. But I was just, I was a foolish kid in that moment. I felt like a foolish kid writing this record. And after, after I realized, after it was evident that I was actually writing a record, and I made this decision in the moment, like, don't tell anyone. Don't shop to labels. Don't look for, like, an outside producer. Produce it with my friend. Um, don't go to a studio. Stay in the house. And the minute you finish write the so writing the song... Start recording the song. Tell me more about that. So in times past, every year of Dashboard, one thing has happened for sure. On every record, there's a song that I've recorded moments after I've written it. Usually with my, you know, in the old days, in, with my limited ability, limited access to recording gear. So no matter what, even though the producer would say, we just can't beat it. Like that whatever the thing is, we can't beat it. I would still hear it as an inferior production. Maybe that was part of the charm, but I don't think so. I think they were just talking about the evident connection I had to the moment, to the song. And I realized that I better learn how to record well. And so I did. I shadowed producers. I essentially acted like an intern and built a, a studio within my house. So the idea is that I will learn to sing the song with more skill. I might learn some stronger melodies along the way through repetition of singing the song and the evolution of that natural evolution of how a small rhythmic changes and melody changes that might enforce the song a little bit better. But I don't think I'll ever be, I might never be as connected to the subject matter in the song and the emotional undercurrent of that song as when I've just written it. So I just go straight from the couch and the coffee table to the microphone and track the song. And then I sketch it out for the band and they come over and they listen to it and their job then is to also just react now sure we shape and hone the thing later but we've captured the heart of the song on the day it was born i mean there are there were cases where i just sang to the click with no guitar um there were cases where i recorded the guitar and more instruments no 
usually when it, the latest a vocal would happen would be second. And the guitar I would record, generally speaking, would be like this throwaway track. It wouldn't probably be the guitar. I'd try for it, but I did, wasn't caring about that so much yet. I was more caring about that the, a song to me, no matter what, this is just my opinion, is the, the lyrical content and the melody. Now, rhythm and dynamics and counter melodies and all that stuff, now that can impact, that can impact the song and make it sustain beyond its original power, I guess. So there is no, uh, and that really is frustrating when you write on occasion, like I do when I write all the music first, and sometimes I'll play all the instruments and I'll be so psyched and I realize, well, I just did that now for out of steam and I don't have anything to say about this. I've never written the lyrics, I never written the melody, I trusted they would be there, they're not. So what a waste of time. Come on home and let yourself heal. You could sleep for a thousand years Now I won't let you disappear let While we were on the subject of what was different about Crooked Shadows, I realized one thing I noticed that really returned was Chris's falsetto. In the later Dashboard records before this one, I had noticed he had all but forgotten it when it was one of the trademark sounds of what really made him a special singer when he first burst onto the scene. So I asked him why it came back. I like old stuff better. And I think by old stuff, and I like things from our later moments and songs from our later era of recording. But as a whole body of work, I like everything up through half of Dusk and Summer. And then I was kind of pushed, nudged, maybe shoved when I came to a fork in the road, down the path that I went down. And I instantly, in the moment, and have since wondered, felt I should have gone the other, down the other road. And I think it was, they, the push came from a creative place and a I'm sure some commerce was involved in that, you know, Interscope's thinking, well, the, we could, maybe he'll write that massive hit that they look for in every band if we push him into a, a, a different path. And I don't think I needed to be jolted into what I regard, or I don't think I could have been jolted by what I rega- regard as a conventional approach to songwriting. I've always worked better with, with less convention. And so I set out with this record to say, what if... What if I go back to and take that other fork and see where that leads, which I plan to do for the rest of my career? Not only that, what if I hadn't made any record ever in my life and was inside this, of course, I'm a different person as I've grown, the parts of me that made me make the places, what, I mean, this was Army Romance, the very first record. What if I had never made those, but I knew everything I know about music, playing instruments and all these things now that I didn't know then? What if I could use all those tools, tap into what I could tap into inside when I was doing the places and go down that other road, a less conventional writing and production model and good, bad, or indifferent with the result of it, I think I succeeded in the endeavor, I believe. It's for other people to... No, no, it's that one's for me to say. I think that one I get away with. Yeah, I succeeded in the endeavor. Will people like the result? I think they are going to. They seem to so far. But all I can do is kind of hope. With all this talk about label pressures, you would think he would go the DIY route. So I wanted to understand why he chose to work with Fueled by Ramen. I thought it would be interesting to turn this to a conversation with both Chris and Mike Easterlin, who A&R'd this record while also being the president of Fueled by Ramen. So I talked to them about how they came to work together and what some of the decisions were that shaped this record. We talked a bit about the, the, the label pushing me into a conventional pathway with the intention of me my previous label, I mean, maybe finding a way to have the hit that they're looking for every band to have. And that 
as I said before, was not, that's just not a fruitful plane for me to be on. I don't, I don't work well with convention. So I, I very quietly made these, began the process. And the label I wanted to be on was Fueled by Ramen. And so I grew up in an era where label identity was important to me. And if I saw a no idea badge or a Revelation Records badge or Vagrant Records, you know, label, logo, whatever it was, on a record, I would blindly just buy it. Oh, this is going, they've, they basically are curating music I will like. And Fueled by Ramen was from the very beginning when they were a Florida-based label was, some, was a label that I trusted and bought, bought the music and, and that continued on. And there was a period where I think Vagrant got a bunch of bands from our world and Fueled by Ramen got a bunch of bands for our world. Both were interested in what we were doing. And I never talked to Fueled by Ramen at that time because it just by happenstance, none of my circle of friends ended up over there. I just went to, I wanted to go to camp with my buddies. So they went to Vagrant and I followed, I followed suit. I was, I was hopeful that Vagrant would like me. They weren't interested. And then one day out of the clear blue sky, they called me up and said, We're, we want to put this record out in two weeks. Okay. I'll record one then. And I have had a relationship with the people that run Vagrant ever since. Uh, even when I left to be on Interscope, it was under the shepherding hand of a uh, guiding hand of those people still. After the hiatus, my circle of friends actually began to be people on Fueled by Ramen and people that worked at Fueled by Ramen. And I was paying a lot of attention to Fueled by Ramen and just knew that if I ever was a band again, I wanted to be on that label. And it was a loft, that's a pretty lofty goal because it was, I think, when we talked about how when I came back as a touring act, I expected by rights that I should be a club act at best and instead ended up much luckier than that. I probably should have had the only opportunity in that moment is likely a self-release. So, but I set the goal high and I chased it. And so, and so that's where Mike Easterlin comes in. So we brought some songs. My manager brought some songs to, I don't know, Mike, did he discuss with you first the idea of it or first the, the songs? Um, they were initially sent to me by Steve Robertson, um, who does A&R for Atlantic. And he was like, kind of said the same thing that, that Chris just said, which was, you know, I really like these songs. What do you think? He kind of only wants to be on Fuel by Ramen. And I initially, being just completely honest, I was, I was somewhat concerned on a couple of levels. Um, one was it had been eight and a half years. It was, a, I think, an understandi- understandable concern. Even Chris sitting here right in front of me would, would say that because when we... One of the first things he said when, when we said, okay, let's go do this, was I, I really appreciate it, another chance at this. And I think that statement alone says that, you know, he's, he was very realistic. And then my first conversations with Chris, who I didn't know, over a nice breakfast where it wasn't really courting each other. It was just getting to know each other just from a sheer appreciation for each other. And what each other had done was just felt really easy. And I just genuinely liked them. So we got a couple of the things out of the way. The songs that I first heard from Steve Robertson were really good. And the person was really great. And so some of my fears, maybe, or my reluctance uh, slowly was uh, diminishing. And I think talking to some of the, the FBR staff, the interesting thing was, was that it all kind of came back to, well, it's going to be hard. And that's not a reason to not go try. And then I just came down to, well, do you guys like the music? 
And they did. And I said, well, then let's get past it. We work hard every day, you know, so that that shouldn't be a reason to not do it. So since Chris had already recorded these songs, how did they narrow them down to the nine you hear on Crooked Shadows? And what was the process to make them sound relevant today? So initially, um, in listening to a, a few of the songs, one of the things that I felt like we needed to do was that he had done them with a, a friend of his or a producer friend in 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 his in his house and they sounded really great but i thought one of the things that we we needed to do was hand them to somebody tweak them a little bit to see if we could have them still be dashboard songs but be dashboard songs for 2018 we found a really good guy in colin Britton, um who chris the first time he heard the mix was like text me i'm in this guy's amazing so you know he was a he was a piece to the puzzle mixing co-producing i guess is what ultimately we we called it he Definitely had got a lot more hands on, and and to Chris's credit, he he let Colin kind of um, with every song play around a little bit and take some chances, and some of which he he really loved, and some of which he was like, whoa. But I think the trust got there very early on with um, with me and and ult- ultimately with Colin, where it was kind of the three of us just kind of doing this thing together and we wanted to push the envelope and we wanted to try different things and I think when you hear the the album um, whether it be some of the the artists that we got to to perform on it um, we just took some risk and we we tried some different things we did take some risks and we, we bucked you know the thing that was great about Mike is dancing around this I, I, I found a, I found I think it was just one moment that I remember where I was aghast at what happened with the song it was just it the song in that moment and of course of course this ends with like if i'm sitting here today being honest it's like my favorite one it didn't make the record but it's like my favorite mix but it was really just jarring it didn't feel like it connected with the emotionality of the song and i was wrong about it but i was i was and i was indignant i was i was really upset and probably wasn't necessary to express it (laughs) It didn't help the process much, but it was, but it was born out of that. Can I just say that I disagree with you on that? No, I disagree, so, no, <laughs> I disagree with you because I think it did help the process because I think it happened at a moment in the process where we learned a lot about each other, and it made Colin step back a little bit um, because he definitely was taking more risks than I think even I was comfortable with, but I was kind of pushing him that way, and I think that I think it was it was a good reset. Uh, in my opinion, I guess you're right. And then it found, and then we found yeah. the level at which to work. I guess with when we were talking about get, going down, a, like Interscope pushing me down a path of convention to see if it would challenge me. Well, what I liked was being on an unconventional path and having it challenge me and bring me to a new place. So at least this happened on that road. Like it was weird. It wasn't like to- it was totally unconventional. It was out there, and it's what probably every song is going to sound like in two years not my songs but he this guy's so ahead of the curve colonists um that i wouldn't be shocked if that's just what the landscape of music sounds like in two years one of the other elements about colin's contributions to the record was he really felt passionately about the band at the start we heard how his band used to cover dashboard songs and he talks about here what he was doing on his end i actually did this one a little different i i did this because it wasn't really just a mixing process uh, it, was, it was quite a bit more than that and i i think that that's kind of took the whole summer and really dove into this which I, I usually don't take that much time but i was so i was sort of emboldened by the process here and i was fascinated by the songs so much that i kind of took most of the summer and just did it song by song actually um I, and and i that i kind of that's how i 
came to work on that instead of going back to songs and stuff and doing it all as a big piece i just sort of went dug in one song at a time you know some took longer than others but i felt like that way i was able to fully kind of obsess over every little detail of every song and not get overwhelmed by the larger picture that obsession wasn't only with the composition of the songs it also came down to the choices of the countless demos chris recorded and which ones they would put on the record to make up the nine songs on crooked shadows so here was a period where i was like okay mike i'm i want you in you know you're in for penny in for pound here because i just have this pile of songs and i can tell you that i believe in all of them because the ones that seem like they should be in the pile i could not discern between which ones were uh, great and which ones were excellent which and so I, i needed help to understand which songs the record should be comprised of and which songs needed a little more work too and which songs to, to leave for another time? I think that was 24 songs that first day. Um, we got it down to 17 or 18 that day, and then that's what we sent off to Colin to, to start mixing. We, we mixed all 18. There are a lot of songs that could have easily made the record, but let's hold these. The record is a little unconventional. Having only nine songs, and yet they had 18 to choose from, this wasn't from slouching, as Mike would explain. As I, as I drove around and listened to the record, and ultimately Chris called me one day and was like, okay, I, I, you know what, I actually like this too. I felt myself wanting more at the end, and that felt really good to me. It wasn't as easy um, for him initially, because he's like, it's been eight and a half years, and I'm, I have 25 songs we started with, and now we're at nine. But trust me when I tell you, it was it had less to do with quality because we had plenty more and more to do with just kind of the first step back in the door. It felt like let's let's come in with a bang and let's leave them wanting more. And it just the record genuinely feels that way to me. A good friend of ours, Jason Martin, who works for us in in the radio promotion department, um, he was one of the first guys because I, I he's also very opinionated. So I, I wanted to get him early. So towards like the very end of the mixing phase, I sent him the, the kind of what I was thinking as the nine song record. And he called me, he's like, I'm just blown away. Like every one of these could be on the radio. And I was like, that's all I need to hear from you. And believe me, he would tell me if he didn't think so, because he doesn't hold back. And it was just, it's been nice to have some of the people who I really trust in the business reassure me that what we what we did together feels like dashboard but again feels like dashboard dashboard in in 2018 and and that's the greatest compliment as a person who just kind of sunk my blood sweat tears heart um, into this for seven or eight months trying to get this to where it ultimately you know it made him happy and and we felt like we had an amazing record And now I'd like to pause this program and tell you for a minute about what you can expect with the rest of this season of Inside the Album. On this season, we talked to Dashboard Confessional about making a record that pleases both himself and fans, both old and new. I like our old stuff better, and I like moments and songs from our later era of recording. But as a whole body of work, I like everything up through half of Dusk and Summer. Jeff Richmond and the creators of the hit play Mean Girls talk about what goes into developing a mega-hit Broadway play and cast recording. Trying to find out what is that song that you actually want to like sit down and write is tricky and is a challenge because there's not that much real estate for songs, even though it's a musical. Vance Joy talks creating a follow-up to a successful debut album. And I'm uh, like eating my lunch before breakfast, kind of like getting too far ahead before I'm like focusing on just this one detail of what am I doing making a song. 
Pete Wentz of Fall Out Boy talks mentoring nothing nowhere. Like first you find out if you like someone's art. If you do and that's interesting to you, you find out what their basic mission statement as an artist is. And then you see if you can align with that vision. And we also talked to Grandson about crafting his highly politically charged debut EP. The indie rock band wallows on making a record that sounds like the loss of youth. Jason Mraz on finding a greater truth in music for his latest LP, No, and Brent Cobb on making honest music. Subscribe now and stay tuned for the deepest inside look you will get into how great records are being made today. You can also head to AtlanticPodcast.com for more information on this podcast and Atlantic Records. While we were taping this, everyone in the room was going on and on about how in awe we all were of Chris's songwriting abilities. So I wanted to go a little bit deeper about how some of these songs came to being on the record and some of the small changes that have happened to his sound throughout this record. Maybe we start with We Fight, because that was a, a moment of writing that t- turned the tide for everything in, in such a way that I realized just about everything I'd written up to then, which I thought was the record and this was the last song I was writing, was maybe going to have to be revisited by comparison to this song. Or, and what came to be true is, for the most part, I had now started writing the record for every, every, with everything that came after that song, for the most part, with a few, with a couple exceptions. And I always have lyrics written everywhere, notes of paper, notes on my phone, notes on my iPad. And I had essentially the story of We Fight, not the lyrical presentation, but the story of We Fight amassed in these various notes. And I, I began to write the, the riff that starts the song. And I, I really liked, you know, it starts in a minor, minor key, so it has a tension. And I reacted to that tension and realized, this story, I know this story. What's the story? Oh, this is the story I've been writing. And I went to the notes. And there was just one or two lines that would end up in the song. And I just cherry-picked them and started playing and singing. And I, that's usually how I write is stream of consciousness and almost in a direct line. Intro, verse, pre-chorus, chorus, verse, pre-chorus, chorus, bridge, chorus, end of the song, maybe a solo, maybe another bridge, maybe, but basically that's, if A is the start and Z is the end, I, I don't start at C. I write, at, start at A and I end at Z. And, and that song was, when I was finished, I knew, I knew it was, I knew it spoke to a couple of things. I knew it spoke to the story of the scene I was brought up in and given value as a human being, given a safe place to be, despite the fact that I was an uh, outlier, an outsider from polite society. And I knew it spoke to the scene that developed around us, which I can't speak for other bands, but I worked very hard to make a safe place where you were safe, we were safe and valued, irrespective of your gender, your sexual orientation, your gender identity, your race or religion, your political views, I felt like We Fight was reflective of that. And that being also a, a thing worth fighting for and can only work if you're fighting to keep it working, to get fighting together to keep it working, knowing no man or woman can just lift it up by itself. All we can do is say, let's do this together and do the best we can. And then there was the factor of when I write, I, I have one or two things going on in the background because I, 
I have a couple things working. I think in it and strangely in an advantage as an advantage to me, and that is like I don't have a, a, like OCD, but I have I struggle with anxiety, and it manifests itself sometimes with same sim- symptomatically as as OCD might, or maybe ADD might, may, maybe more to the point, more 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 specifically. And I have a learning disability, so to stay focused, I'll often put on one of two things: Sports Center. Because after the first hour, it repeats, and by the f- fourth hour, you've heard every bit of news, and it's just it's just a white noise machine. Or I had CNN or MSNBC on in the background until it became white noise. But first, the information is slipping in, and so this is right around presidential campaign coming to an end, and and the whole record this speaks of not just we fight, and but specifically we, f- we fight, and there's the foreboding realization that our country is going to be led by Donald Trump, I instantly knew that was a change we needed to fight for, starting now, starting before he was inaugurated. And at the same time, I'm writing We Fight, and then singing We Fight, and producing We Fight. And so all these things seep into the, the message within the song, shape the song, shape the recording of the song and certainly shape the song as it lives now on uh, lives on now as a perf- song we perform i asked chris if this is the only political song on the new record it's a, more of most overtly if anything i think that i'm i happen to be very wonky so i believe there's probably other moments i mean i have a tendency to make everything sound like i'm singing about a girl by choice but often I'm singing about an untenable situation or a, or a lovely situation but i'm making it sound romantic or tense when it's really about, uh, not about a uh, woman or, or a relationship. Another great memory, I'll, I'll just pick another one out of the hat. There's a song called Be All Right. And my friend Corey Boast, whose sister Sarah is in Twin Forks with us, was staying with me while he was looking for a house. So he stayed for a while. And he's a great songwriter, really, really fabulous songwriter. And he had like a germ of an idea one day and we, we, we had been drinking and we... We're sitting there enjoying each other's company. Let me show you this this little idea I have. And he shows it to me. And the next thing you know, we're writing the song. You know, we now we've done a co-write. And he says, you know, this is going to be great. It's going to be great for my record. I said, awesome. And I felt proud, you know. We'd really gotten it over the finish line. And I would think about it. I'd find myself humming this song a lot, you know. And he sent me the, then he sent me the recorded, recorded version. It was very good. And he was very excited because he thought it was going to be sort of the centerpiece of his record. And I said, uh, I sat with it for a couple of days I call him a Corey, man, you should say no to this if you want to. But I really feel like what we wrote that day was is a dashboard song. Not in its presentation now, but if you just stripped all the music away and li- heard the melody and the music, it's, it's a dashboard song. Is there any way you let me take a crack at that? He goes, absolutely. Let's, you give it a shot. I say, all right, 50-50. And just, it, you know, just like it was when it was going to be on your record, and, and it landed hard. And... We're both really, really proud of that song. The story it told was was powerful in that it was a mix of two people's perspective of the same shared shared situation. Because we had just this came from us talking about relationships, ex- experiences that we had that applied to the situation he was in that we both understood. Because I'd been in that place and he was in that place, and we were just discussing it. And I literally think I said, "That's a line," and wrote it down in just the conversational moment. And he goes, you know what, let me show you this little idea that I had that might work with that line. And, and then we just, the, the song took off from there. 
One of the thoughts I've heard expressed about Chris's new record is that the cover songs he released shortly before this record obviously had an impact as he was covering some pop songs, and perhaps those are what shaped this really poppy, hooky sound on the new record that has all these fresh new elements. But I found out that wasn't the case. Okay, so that one came after we were well into knowing we had a dashboard record and having not still, still making sure not to tell anybody. And the reason that came about was, which started it? The 1975 song. I, I love that song. I love that band. It's my, my favorite band of recent years. Yeah. Very, very good band. Really wonderful people who I hadn't met yet. I met them subsequently through their reaction to the, the cover, which was wonderful. It's a nice way to meet somebody. And I just recorded it because I hadn't written a song that day. I also, I also just like playing and singing sometimes. So I did it. And then Cam from Sorority Noise called me up. And he's, Chris, I'm in a tight spot. What's going on? So here's the deal. My headlights, I guess... Maybe he had headlights like, like they flip up. His car's like 100 years old. And they just weren't coming up. So he says, I can't drive at night. And I said, where are you going? He was coming from uh, his home in the Northeast in, in Philadelphia, I think, unless he was at his folks, which is even further away. Um, I think he was in Philly, though. And he was heading to Memphis to work on Julian's record to help her with just some orn- ornamental pieces. This is the first record or the second record? For Julian's second record. I had ju- Julian had just stayed at my house, and Cam stopped by, and we spent the night, and we... I went for coffee. All right, buddy, give Julian a hug. And And I found myself just like sitting there like, well, I'm jealous. Those guys are in the studio hanging out together, my friends. And so I just, I did, I decided I'd I'd send them a cover, each a cover of their their own songs. And just as like, hey, just thinking of you. And then the next day I was just messing with this open tuning and I was playing this melody in the open tuning and I thought, hey, that's Love Yourself. Which, by the way, I think is a really, really fantastic song that, it impresses me that Justin Bieber was able to finally reach people like me who recognize and respect his talent, but whose his instincts as a songwriter, his taste for production for his songs, don't draw me in traditionally, though I recognize they're incredible because he's Justin Bieber. I mean, but this song, it really cut me pretty deeply in a way that I thought, and there's been a handful this last year and a half that I like this feeling, although it, it drives me crazy. I wish I'd written that. I wish I'd written that line. Could you tell me some more of them? Some more of them, yeah. Phoebe Bridgers, incredible record. We'll just start with that. The, the record, you could just take any line. But the, you missed my heart. The lyric that you missed my heart, but also the conceit that she uses to deliver the line. All the build up. Because it could just be like, that's a great line. You could write any kind of love song or breaks up song in a traditional way and have that line and you win. But her, the story she weaves in and out and away from that line. Glorious. Another one, though, is one that I find, I think this might be the most romantic lyric ever written by anyone, ever, for people that love music the way I love music. People that obsess about music, that it becomes part of their lives. I don't mean my music, the music I listen to. And the line is, and may all your favorite bands stay together. And it's a lyric by Dawes. And it is the kind of wish for somebody that says, you know, like, I don't know where life's going to lead you, and I hope everything works out well. Times a million jabs into your heart, straight into your heart, you know. May all your favorite bands stay together. I like pop music, but I don't feel, I don't feel like a, a burning love for pop music in the way that I think it's, we've just defined it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am a f- fan of grabbing unusual instruments, uh, instruments that are unusual to me and seeing what they'll do to the song. 
where can they take this song? I'm really interested in taking a song and deconstructing it and reconstructing it into something, uh, something really different and powerful. So anyway, so with, with the new record, I guess I explored that with a delicate hand on, say, Catch You, and with a, a heavy hand by just deciding to work with Cash Cash on Belong, and with a heavy hand from Jonathan, the producer, Jonathan Clark, on the song about us, where I wrote it with an acoustic guitar, and I said, Jonathan, where, what, is the, what is this song without an acoustic guitar? And he said, let's find out. And he took, a, he, that was a deep dive, and he, and he was like, uh, you just let me make you uncomfortable here. And then I got so excited, you know, I think, you know, you go through that thing of like, I don't like this. I, oh, I love this. And then you really dig in, get your, you know, get your hands dirty. This, but then uh, we put out those, those covers just because I'd recorded them and my, my manager said, these are good. You're putting these out. No forethought. I was like, but I, but, uh, but, <laughs> but, you know, I would have done a better job or I would have done this or I would have done that. He goes, now we're putting them out. And so I was like, well, what about the fact that we're, you know, haven't told anybody we're making a record. He's like, do you think this means you have to tell people you're making a record? And I go, well, well, no, I guess not. Let's do it. I noticed a big difference when I was doing my research for this interview of Chris's old catalog versus now, that while he was doing a return to form of the early records in many ways, what had changed is he was no longer writing from an insecure place. His older material was always this insecure kid hoping he was good enough for things, but now he was talking about lifting others up and bringing them there. This is what Chris had to say about that. That's the version of who I am now. I'm not um, operating or coming to songs with from a place of like <sighs> trepidation or pain, although I do think I explore some moments in this record that are that are not the loveliest moments of your life, but I don't think I came to them in pain. And I don't think that, I do think that I've become in the years since someone whose job it is now to take care of a whole lot of people. At that time in my life, I was trying to figure out how to take care of me. And it, I feel I have a depth of, uh, but that has a surprising depth of emotionality, exploring that, th that responsibility and desire. But, you know, I guess possibly the fact that I was like thrust into a position at a pretty young age of like employing people for one that probably starts with that. Um, having a relationship with an audience that says to me, would say to me things like that could be translated into you are taking care of me here. A lot has been said about the lyrical content of the scene at large in retrospect. And I think what I am proudest of with my songs was I was writing about a woman, not women, and not some fabrication of, not some amalgamation of a bunch of different women that I could then throw darts at. I was just saying like, this happened, it was shitty, it hurt, and I'm telling you that it hurt. Or, this was beautiful, it was important and lovely and wonderful and powerful, and I want you to know that. And then I, the, by, by which, the result of which I think was that the audience, male or female, singing to that song, was able to be the protagonist 
So, so for example, if I'm singing a song like Screaming Infidelities, which is a, shines a light on these little moments of, of how you get through readjusting to your maybe social circle or your own life adjacent to the person that hurt you that you, you still want somehow. Well, if I'm singing to a room that has women in it, I don't think that they felt that they were the subject. They felt like the protagonist singing, even though I was a male singing. Uh, it was written by a male and performed by a male, but they were performing it themselves that night. I'm pleased with that. No, I've never been able to, I've never had success with thinking about like the listener's experience later, in, uh, um, uh, what the listener's experience will be later when they finally hear this. Sure, I assess it when I'm in the moment and I'm with them, or I'm, and I'm singing that, we're performing it together, or they tell me how it feels. But when I'm sitting there just by myself, it's really just my own song that I'm singing alone. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed it, please share it on social media. To hear other episodes and more of Atlantic's podcasts, head to AtlanticPodcast.com. Dashboard Confessional's new album, Crooked Shadows, is out now on all streaming formats. Thanks, and stay tuned.